2: Welcome to series three of conversations with Annalisa Barbieri. That's me. I'm a broadcaster and journalist and my Ask Annalisa column appears in The Guardian every Saturday. Each week I'm lucky enough to speak to some amazingly insightful top-of-their-field specialists and this podcast gives me the opportunity to speak to them in much more detail on subjects that come up all the time. I self-fund this project and I'd love to continue to do more. So if you'd like to support us and also listen to this podcast series free of ads, do join us over on Patreon, where you can also get the podcasts before they go on general release. Go to patreon.com forward slash Annalisa Barbieri. Otherwise, you can leave a one-off donation on Acas Supporter. You can find the link for that in the description of this episode, or just please listen and share as much as you can. It would also mean a lot to us if you left a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. I first met the guest in this episode, Jane Harris, and her husband, Jimmy Edmonds, in 2013. Their son, Josh, had died in a road accident in Vietnam two years earlier, when he was on a six-month tour of the Far East. He was 22. I interviewed Jane and Jimmy for an article I was writing for the Guardian family section, on how to organise a different sort of funeral. If you're interested in reading this, I'll put the link in the episode bio. Jane and Jimmy invited me into their home and told me about Josh, his funeral and their grief. I was struck by how Jane and Jimmy talked about death and grief. How, even though it was incredibly painful and difficult, they actually made it all less frightening. Jimmy let me touch Josh's ashes, an act which I found incredibly moving and which enabled me, three years later, to approach my own father's ashes with far less fear. Meeting them changed me and my approach to death and grief. But I understand the fear this subject evokes because, when it came to it, I wasn't able to write that article I'd interviewed them for until a full five years later. The thing is, avoiding grief doesn't make it go away, but it's how we think about it and how we process it that is so important. In this episode, I talk to Jane again about what she's learned about grief about how we might start to fold it into our lives and how to start that process. Jane is a psychotherapist and bereavement specialist. And with Jimmy, who is a photographer and filmmaker, they created the Good Grief Project, a charity dedicated to creative and active approaches to grief. They run some amazing retreats for the bereaved and have made some wonderful films and written books. I'll talk about them at the end of the episode. This is a difficult subject, but Jane is immensely comforting Sharing her own pain to stand alongside others. You and I first met nearly 10 years ago, not long after your son Josh died, and you welcomed me into your home and told me about the funeral that you had made for Josh. And I have to say, completely changed my mind about funerals and how to approach death. So it's my privilege to have you on this podcast. I wonder if we can start with a really simple question, which is, what is grief? Thank you, Annalise. It's so lovely to talk to you again. Yes,
3: it's nearly a decade that our son died. And, you know, I'll answer this question very differently to how I would have answered it if you'd asked me the same question back then. It's love. You know, you grieve as much as you love. And when it's the death of a child, it's immeasurable. It's a bottomless pit of feelings and emotions. And in our case learning because i think that grief is something that in a way you can't go around it you've got to go through it and there's just so much to learn it's so true the anxiety the fear the lack of clarity about what the future is going to look like is all tied up but i think grief is about in a nutshell Finding a more comfortable place to fold that person into your heart so that you can move forward in a healthy enough way. And I think the word enough is something that I use a lot because it's never going to be perfect. You know, when you've experienced the death of a child, for example, your life is forever changed. There's no way around that. However, it is possible to have a good enough life and survive it. Though in the early stages, I think you don't necessarily know that. And I think that can go for all sorts of grief it's not just about the death of a child I know as a therapist my clients often talk to me about how changed they are and how difficult it is that people expect them to be who they were before and as you'll know yourself when you go through a heartbreak or a loss you are not the same again and why would you want to be because I guess our mission in life well my mission in life is to learn from my experiences however difficult I don't want to be stuck with unfinished business.
2: Yes, I mean, after Josh died, in fact, when I came to see you, my dad was still alive. But my dad dying was uh, a really big grief, I have to say. And I think you taught me a few things, really. You taught me that it's not hierarchical. If you're grieving, you're grieving, aren't you?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I remember so clearly... Where you were at because that, those early that early stage of grief is so hard, isn't it? Um, and, and, and I was really struck by the cultural the cultural references, you know, because we do it so badly in England and in Scotland of course it's different. and in Ireland there's the wake and there's all sorts of you know different approaches. Um, and Italy, of course, you do it well I can't make these generalizations, but there's so many different ways of doing it. but I come from a Jewish background, a non-religious Jewish background. And I've always felt slightly discombobulated about how to grieve. And so when Josh died, we had to kind of step right up into this um, nightmare scenario of creating something that would do justice to him and to do justice to his friends um, and his sister and brother. And, you know, it's the hardest thing in the world, as you'll know, with your father, for example, I mean, what do, how do you say goodbye to these pivotal people in your life how do you begin to imagine that you can ever do them justice and I think in a way you've got to drop that idea straight away and think I'm, I, I I, can only do my best I want to be inclusive I want to involve people and that's where I think Josh's celebration of life taught us so much.
2: I didn't meet you when Josh was still alive but it seemed to me that when he died you really seem to sort of want to change how grief is talked about. I mean, a lot of your life and the Good Grief Project is involved with helping people walk alongside their grief. I don't want to sound flippant, but you kind of, you really ran with it. You didn't kind of run away from it. Would that be fair to say?
3: I think that's very fair to say, Annalisa. I think that we had to find a hands-on way of dealing with it and doing justice to Josh. We realised very early on that his friends didn't know what to do. And when we asked them to come and get involved in his celebration of life they were very reluctant they said well no because we'll cry and we said yes of course you will but you might laugh too we want you to share your memories we need you to share your memories and we learned through the incredible kind of I suppose range of contributions from his friends we learned so much about Josh we learned so much about them and that that event oddly is something that that sticks in my mind as such a special time, full of love, full of respect. It was healing. It was a ritual that helped us. And I was thinking about it in the context of COVID, for example, where people haven't had an opportunity to say goodbye. And in many ways, you know, rituals can be created whenever you feel ready to create them. I think taking the pressure off is important. We were under pressure to create something pretty quickly, But even so, it doesn't matter. We still create rituals. I've just recently planted a tree for Josh. Doing these things is really helpful and cathartic, particularly if you didn't get to say goodbye. And I suppose a lot of people through COVID have experienced that firsthand and have felt really, really traumatized, as we felt traumatized back then. But trauma has to be addressed, I guess. And, you know, whatever we can do. To be kind to ourselves is, is is the only way forward.
2: You said at the beginning, when I asked you what is grief, that you would answer it differently now to then. How would it be different? How would it have been different before?
3: Mm. Well, in the early stages, it was too much. It was too overwhelming. I remember saying right back then, there are no words. We're just about to publish a book called When Words Are Not Enough. Basically, trying to capture how you can say goodbye how you can grieve creatively and actively and we didn't know that then because we hadn't had to grieve I mean yes we'd said goodbye to parents but somehow they were deaths in the right order of things and Josh's death was a kind of a death in the wrong order of things no parent ever imagines Mm. having to bury their child and and it's an unthinkable thought but in many ways by going into denial about that thought doesn't help in any way. And I think the creative and active approach was something that both myself and Josh's dad were very comfortable with because we'd met at film school, we'd always made films together, and we realised pretty quickly, and Jimmy's the most passionate photographer I've ever come across, we realised straight away we were going to have to carry on doing what we what we could do, what we could do best. And that was being active and being as creative as we could be. So making films creating rituals, creating an event that encompassed all of that was going to help us. And we didn't know that back then. So in answer to your question, you know, in a way, it was a huge learning curve to realise that by just feeling the pain and then doing whatever it is that you could do, whether it be going for a run, going for a walk, painting write it. It doesn't matter. You know, finding your way back to doing that thing again that's helped you historically.
2: I mean, I think the thing with grief is people are even afraid to talk about it. Of all the emotions, grief is terrifying. And I think although grief isn't hierarchical, losing my dad was awful. But some things helped me. He was 86 and a half. And I thought, well, how much longer could I have hoped to have had him? And I'd interviewed someone earlier that year his dad had died and she said that she came at it from a place of gratitude so whenever she felt sad mm-hmm. um she tried to turn it into something that she was grateful for i mean not every time because that would be very kind of avoiding the grief but so i just thought i'm so lucky and in fact at his funeral i said you know i'm standing here and i feel really lucky and i and i did and it it really helped me but in those first few days the thing that was really important to me was that i could survive it and i needed to know that i could survive it And so I sought out people who had lost their parents and I needed them to tell me that it was going to be okay. What helped you straight after Josh died?
3: In those early stages, I I have to say, I didn't think I could survive. I kind of wanted to die. And I think that's a really important thing to say because a lot of parents who lose children do want to die. And they're ashamed that they're not being good grievers, dignified grievers, they failed. But in many ways, it has to be said, we have to name it. And being that bereaved parents represent people's worst nightmare, I suppose it's a very lonely place to be and you don't know who to talk to because people kind of run from you, not consciously, but at an unconscious level, people just don't want to be anywhere close to you. They can can see it in your eyes. And so after about a year or so, after the funeral was over, I remember thinking, oh, my goodness. There's no one I can talk to. I better go back into therapy. I'm going to have to pay a therapist to listen to me. (laughs) And I'm a therapist myself, and I have many people who Mm. pay me to listen because, you know, people don't know how to listen. They don't know how to tolerate the discomfort of what grief can represent. But I also became very aware that peer-to-peer support's a wonderful thing. And you said you wanted to seek out other people who'd gone through similar losses. That's exactly the same for us. I sought out an organisation called the Compassionate Friends, which is a a peer-to-peer support group. And we made a film for them called Say Their Name as a mark of our respect and a tribute to the organisation. And that peer-to-peer support was so valuable because the first meeting I went to when I was at an all-time low and I thought, I've got to find someone who's going to... Understand where I'm coming from. Jimmy wasn't ready to talk, really. He didn't know how to. I went on a retreat, and the first thing somebody said to me on that retreat was, So, welcome, who are you here to remember? Mm. And I said, Oh, it's going to be okay. They're asking me to name my child. Nobody's asked me to mention Josh's name. And that was the inspiration for the name of the film that we made for the Compassionate Friends called Say Their Name. Mm. Because, you know, If you mention the name of the person who's gone, it might bring a tear to that person's eye, but it's not necessarily a tear of despair, it's a tear of appreciation. You know, you think, oh, how lovely that somebody has mentioned my loved one's name.
2: Well, yes, because otherwise I remember years and years ago, a friend of mine lost her dad and she said, gosh, not only has he died, but now I can't talk about him because she said whenever I try and mention him, people just shut down and I I really took that on board. People don't know what to say. Jimmy said two really key things when I met him at your kitchen table. He said, when someone dies, you can make no new memories with them. So other people remembering them is in like a new memory and that really stuck with me because I remember thinking... I must take that on board. You know, if I meet somebody and I knew the person who's died, you know, if it's appropriate to talk about them and say, oh, you know, I remember your mum and she oh, your mum loved that, or your dad loved this. And the other thing he said was that he couldn't take any more photos of Josh. And obviously, as you said, Jimmy takes a lot of photos. So he took some pictures with his ashes, didn't he?
3: Yes. Very quickly, we realised that photography was going to be a a lifesaver because, you know, continuing bonds is all about taking something... And carrying it forward, it is so possible to discover things through creative endeavours, whether it be photography or film. But, you know, I think the loneliness of that discomfort that comes with being someone who's bereaved is particularly hard because... Nobody knows how to be silent with you. We're not taught how to be silent. You know, that sort of noble silence, that sort of wise silence that I remember I craved. I'd longed for somebody to sit next to me and just be robust enough. It wasn't that I was going to cry or sob. It's just that the newly bereaved spend a lot of time trying to make it okay for other people. And I know this personally, but also from my clients who avoid bringing it up, who avoid talking about it because they're terrified of the impact it's going to have on the other person, rather than actually thinking, what do I need? And so I think what I would say to people is, if you want to support a good friend, and if you really genuinely want to support a friend who's grieving, work on it. It won't just happen. Work on it and get comfortable with it. If you don't know how to do that, do some reading, chat to someone, because one of the most helpful things you can do is literally to sit with someone as a therapist does with a client, without making an intervention, without trying to fix it. It's about that terribly difficult thing that doctors don't like to do. None of us like to do is to be alongside someone else's pain, knowing that you can't make it better because it's not for fixing. It is what it is. It's so hard. It's taken me years of training, you know, but I think we can all do
2: it. Grief, I mean, you said at the beginning about what it is. One of the things I've learned is that it is love turned inside out. I always think of it like a sort of concave, convex thing. And for a while I was thinking, who would want to love? Because when that love goes, it's so painful. And it it is, isn't it? I mean, it's just, it's so jagged grief. I think that's why people are so afraid of it. But I have also learned you can't, you just can't avoid it. You have to face it. So how can you start facing grief? Mm. Well, I like your description
3: and it's interesting, isn't it? Because you're a wonderful creative. Whatever it is that can help join up the kind of hole that's left in your heart and help you reach a place where it's less jagged is, is all that it's about. Because to begin with, in the early stages, it's so jagged, isn't it? It's so... Mm. you can't even touch it it's like a razor blade and then with the passing of time it becomes less jagged and the more work you do sometimes your back has to be right up against the wall even before you can begin to move forward and I think that's okay but address books change friends become strangers strangers become friends and, and everything is you almost have to reinvent yourself because there's so much change in your life and of course With sudden traumatic death, not death in the right order of things, of course, you've lost your belief in the world. You've lost your role as a parent, for example. And so you have to find belief again. And there's a lot of really good stuff written about that. You know, how do you find belief in the world again when everything has been destroyed? Well, reading really helps, but what doesn't help is cliches. Um, You know, maybe they're in a better place or something's happened for a reason. You know, there's so many things that people say with the best will in the world that don't help. It's the little gestures, the congruent, authentic statements that people make. One of the things that helped us early on was that lovely dishes of food would appear on our doorstep. I don't know who put them there. I don't know how they got there. But in the, before the funeral and in the early weeks, in the first two weeks after we learned of Josh's death in Vietnam, because he died abroad, this food would appear. And I don't know if we ate it, I really don't. I don't remember. We were so shocked. All we could do was huddle together in the living room. We wanted to be together as a family because that was the only safe thing to do. But this food appeared. We may have eaten it. We may not have. I imagine we did. And then we would put the plates outside and they would disappear and more food would come back. And I mean, how lovely is that? That was a very generous thing that happened. And anyone can offer that kind of support without saying, what do you want to eat? What would you like? Mm, Just just do it.
2: Make a guess. Just do it. You talk about losing your place in the world and vulnerability. And again, one of the things I learned firsthand was how anxiety and grief are so linked, aren't they? Oh, yeah. It's an agonizingly uncomfortable feeling. You're in this
3: sort of hyper alert kind of state of mind where you can't regulate anymore. because of The course worst has happened. Every parent, when the worst has happened. And of course, you can't really be bereaved without... In, in, in a shocking, untimely way without mm. being traumatized. And with trauma comes very often PTSD, mm. post-traumatic stress disorders, which is, it's not something to be afraid of. I think it's something to recognize because if you can name it, it's much less of a threat. But if you try and push it down, grief has a way of catching up with you. It will get you. If you don't pay attention to it, it will out. Grief will find its way out if you don't find a way for it to be expressed. And I think that's at the heart of my learning, my approach to life, my approach to kind of recovery is find a voice for it, whatever that voice, inverted commas, might be, so that you can resurface and you can find your way through again.
2: Because do you think if you don't, the anxiety becomes worse?
3: Well, I absolutely do, because what's a panic attack, but really a buildup of emotions. It's a bit like that suitcase that you kind of keep stuffing full of stuff and you end up sitting on top of it, trying to shut it. And of course, it doesn't shut when in actual fact, what you have to do is really when you feel able to open the suitcase, take out that T-shirt that's a bit torn or a bit smelly and you never really liked anyway. why are you taking it with you? You know, thin things out, sift through stuff make space. And I think by making that space, you can actually manage the anxiety so much better. But if you're battling against it, and if you're allowing denial to take over, I'm afraid grief will be the winner, or panic will be the winner. You know, that PTSD stuff is kind of a normal reaction to your brain being completely, your neural pathways being completely skewed if
2: someone's listening and they're thinking but I don't even know how to start doing that or I don't want to what's the sort of first step is it just about talking what about if they don't want to talk it's absolutely not
3: about talking it's not about doing anything really in the early stages it's about mm. breathing it's allowing the breath to breathe itself it's about taking tiny 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 steps it's about counting Time in seconds, not in minutes or days. It's about not thinking about the future. You need to kind of immerse yourself in the moment in those early stages. And I think for me, nature was terribly, terribly healing in terms of going for a walk. I'd go running and I'd find that just through the act of running, and I'm not a sporty person away from it, I'm actually quite a lazy person, but running liberated me. It allowed me to begin to put one foot in front of the other and then break into a very sluggish run because as I say I'm not sporty and then I'd find myself sobbing and I'd sit in a field and I'd cry and it was such a release and I'd hope nobody could see this mad woman in her running gear sitting in a field crying but that was the sort of thing that helped me you know one foot after the other noticing nature noticing flowers noticing plants I got huge pleasure out of that in the early stages. Jimmy, for example, immersed himself in photography. That was everything for him, looking at the detail in an image and creating new stuff. And we all do it our own way. But I think people shouldn't put themselves under any pressure or measure themselves against other people's ways of grieving because that's a hiding to nowhere.
2: one of the things that people always mention when we talk about grief is the stages of grief it's never really resonated for me I think the first one is disbelief I don't even remember the stages of them but what do you think about the sort of the stages of grief
3: well I think you know like everything else that I know and I've learned is that they're terribly useful principles, but it's not about the order of the stages. It's about recognising that there are stages, but those stages can come in any which way. And they can repeat as well, can't they? And they can repeat. So, for example, right now, because of what's happening in Ukraine, I feel I'm kind of back in my early grief. I've been feeling really, really emotional. So what happens is that it takes you back to the disbelief, to the shock, to the trauma There's the transgenerational stuff, you know, if you've had a history. Events in the world right here and now are reopened, and there's an accumulative kind of trauma, I think, that can take over. It's a tough time for a lot of people right now. It's stuff that may not have been processed back then that in a way catches up with you. It's what I was saying earlier, you know, stuff does tend to re-emerge in the here and now. And rather than sort of trying to push it down and shoving it in that suitcase that won't shut, you know, you kind of think, okay, maybe I need to do a piece of work. I mean, I would say that as a therapist, but I, I think it's like that's how I've got through and that's how my clients get through. And my clients tell me that one of the things that helps them most is when I say, but it's still early days for you. And they say, but it's two years. My friends say I should be how I was back then. And I say, you'll never be who you were back then. Two years is still early early days, two months, two weeks. Everybody does it differently. Don't put that pressure on yourself. Stop trying to please other people. Just acknowledge your own feelings and it will begin to work its way through.
2: Do you think you've processed your grief for Josh?
3: You know, Annalisa, that's such a good question. I really feel that I've done 10 years of really hard work And this is a strange thing to say i feel better i feel stronger i feel happier than i've probably ever felt in my life at times i am so much more able to live in the moment than i ever was before and josh taught me this that that's his kind of legacy you know he was in my life for 22 years he'll always be in my life but in that 22 years when he was actually alive he's just given me so much and I'm so grateful for those 22 years I wish with all my heart it could have been longer but in a way his death has taught me that to move forward I have to kind of be brave I have to dig into these difficult feelings because at the end of the day you know I don't think anyone will be upset but we're all going to die unless someone's got some secret that they haven't shared you know we're all going to die and so in many ways we need to get up close and personal to that kind of acknowledgement of the reality of our lives and, and our insignificance too.
2: Can we talk a little bit about children and their the way they grieve? Because I remember a few mm. years ago when I was researching something, a bereavement counsellor said that children grieve differently. He said that adults tend to wait. You know, you may go through a couple of days of thinking about that person again if they've died a few years ago or a few months ago. But children puddle jump. So they might be playing with Lego mm. and suddenly say where's granddad, and you think they've been thinking about it all the time, but they haven't. Is that your experience, that children grieve differently?
3: I I really believe that children do grieve differently, but it's very much down to the family environment or the environment that they are growing up in. Because if my experience of growing up was, you know, in a family where death wasn't spoken about, so I learned not to speak about it. You know, my parents had a horror of it. I don't know whether it was to do with sort of their history and being Jewish, but they certainly had a horror of it. Whereas with my grandchildren, you know, My little granddaughter can say to me, Josh died, didn't he, Oma? Josh died. (laughs) And I'm able to say to her, yes, he did. And she'll say, oh, and she'll carry on playing. And it's a normal kind of reaction, isn't it? If we can mirror something back for children who have grown up or grew up with a fear of what death represents or with language that doesn't quite do it justice, like we've lost somebody or... You know, it's very confusing. are you're gonna yeah. find them again. Well, they've
2: gone to sleep. I think that's terrifying. They've gone to sleep. And so the child will think,
3: Oh, they're gonna wake up again, or they've gone to heaven. And children are so amazingly able to deal with grief if we if we are strong enough to let them. Because in a way it's a bit like Josh's friends. I know they're not children, they were twenty-two, but they couldn't grieve for Josh until we said, It's okay for you to cry. And it's okay for you to laugh. And then the grief was alive and it was real and it was cathartic. And they all said they felt better. And I don't think it matters whether you're 22 or six or four. If you can allow those words to be uttered, to be, to be spoken by a child, that child thinks, oh, death is part of life. Life is part of death. It's okay. If children need us to normalize it. And that's not easy. Um, and, and my parents' generation didn't really know how
2: to do that. My family did. I mean, if anything, Italian families or my Italian family, they talk about death a bit too much. Oh, right. So actually, sometimes it was quite nice to sort of tip my toe into the more English but Annalisa, way but,
3: but that's really special because in many ways, look at who you are and look at how you are, and you are not afraid to talk about this. Now, in a way, that's the legacy of your parents in a way that's a ro- it's a role model it's a lovely thing isn't it but yes of course it's disconcerting but you know rather than harboring a fear they
2: say it just how it was no i mean i have to say that we were taught about death because yeah. when you come from a very big family there's always someone dying um dead or being born so it was not something <laughs> i ever grew up i mean i wouldn't say i wouldn't fear it because but mm. it, it was it was talked about in everyday conversation Unlike certain other things.
3: Well, for you, it was part of life, it was a reality. It was absolutely. You, know, you were living hard. it. Absolutely. People did die, and that's so healthy, but that's, it's quite rare.
2: Jane, as a mother, how did you give yourself space to grieve Josh whilst also supporting your two other children, Rosa and Joe?
3: So it was very difficult, really difficult, because I fell into the same trap that we all fall into. I wanted to protect Rosa in particular, who was younger than Josh. She was 18 at the time in the middle of her A-levels. And so I kind of found myself, I know, and her friends didn't know how to talk to her. They did learn with time, but I wanted to protect her. And so I didn't really want her to see me crying. And I fell back into those old patterns, those learnt patterns of stiff upper lip trying to be brave. And of course, I knew that was wrong. Um, You know, and so we did speak and we set up the charity and the the Good Grief Project. And the kids, you know, Joe and and Rosa are very much part of it. They run the workshops, they do the food, they do the personal training. It's it's amazing that over a period of time they've learned to take part. But back then I was really, really worried. As a mother, I felt I'd failed. You know, Josh had died, I'd failed. Now that's illogical because there's nothing I could have done. But I'd kind of lost my job description. Mm. I'd lost my role. And so I wanted to be there for Rosa and I knew, my heart knew, that I had to be there for her by letting her see some of my feelings. There was no point in shielding her from that. On the other hand, I wanted her to see that life could go on and at that point I didn't know how it was going to go on. So, you know, it's about having the courage to be as authentic as you can be, but saying that you know I remember when people when I'd find myself alone in the house I'd feel such a sense of relief that I could wail Mm. in a way that I wouldn't do when other people were around or when I went running I could let it go so I think as a mother as a parent as the person I am it was really it was one of the hardest things you know allowing the space allowing the discomfort of looking into my daughter or my son's eyes and seeing their grief wishing that they haven't had to learn this so early in their lives. You know, why did they have to lose a sibling? Because, let's face it, siblings are very little talked about, very little understood. They're the kind of invisible, forgotten mourners. People, Mm -hmm. Rosa would say to me back then, mum, people always ask me how you are, but they never ask me how I am. Mm -hmm. And I remember saying to her, "I, I wish they would... I wish they would. And she'd say, well, your grief is is, is greater than mine. They both said that. Mm. A parent's grief. And I'd say, actually, you know what, that's not going to help you and it's not going to help me. And it's not necessarily true. That pecking order of pain really didn't help, wouldn't help them, wouldn't help me. Their grief is their grief. Our grief is our grief.
2: I think you've touched on something really important, which is that depending on who's died, you know, other people have also lost someone if possible, it's it's really important to acknowledge that. When I lost my grandparents, I remember my dad, the last one to go was his mum. I was only 16 and I was looking out the window and he put his hand on my shoulder, even though it was his mother that had died. And he said, it's all too much, isn't it? And I thought, oh my gosh, he's actually acknowledged that they were something to me too. And it really struck me and I try really hard now with my children. I think that's so important because otherwise they can end up supporting you and obviously your grief is massive but your children as you said they've lost a sibling and in a way you're right they take it for granted you just think your siblings will be there forever
3: yeah it's a horrible awakening uh, so it's it's a terrible thing you know it's something that you think would never happen what you're saying about family and acknowledging it that sort of leads to disenfranchised grief and disenfranchised grief doesn't help anyone
2: well you're not processing it like we spoke about before and if you're not processing it it gets stuck doesn't it
3: yeah and then it becomes an accumulative you know accumulative grief is not helpful for anyone we need to unpack it and we need to normalize it and just having this lovely conversation with you you know I feel like we're sitting in our living room chatting I don't I, I suppose I've had practice and you've had practice but it feels like a very intimate chat about something that's so kind of central to our lives i don't know you you don't know me yes we've met before but there's just something about saying it's okay i'm not going to upset you you're not going to upset me we can we can allow these words to be articulated and we can see where
2: they lead us you hit the nail on the head, and I think that goes back to what people say, that they're afraid to say the wrong thing. I remember when I was interviewing you and Jimmy, you both started to cry, and I, my immediate reaction was, I'm so sorry, and you said the tears were there. You know, it's it's not you. and, I, and But you, you gave me permission to talk about grief. I felt like I could ask you anything. You would be okay with it, even though it was really painful. And I think a lot of people are afraid to say anything in case they say the wrong thing. And what I try and say to people is... Just say something (laughs) or put a hand on their shoulder. Given that, I mean, there's one of the things in your film, I think it was in A Love That Never Dies, which is that we say that actually everyone is grieving and yet so many people are so sort of bad at dealing with it. But if anyone's listening, what might they say to someone who's recently been bereaved?
3: Well, you know, I mean, even if someone's paralysed by fear of saying the wrong thing, it's better to say... I really don't know what to say, but I'm going to try and be here for you in the best way I can. I think it's much more helpful to put it like that rather than saying, what do you need? Because the person doesn't know what they need. They really don't. I think just showing that you want to try and be there as best you can, that you'll try and manage your own discomfort as best you can. I think that's really helpful. But, you know, what we've discovered is that on the whole, most people want to be given the space to talk about their loved ones, whether they're alive or whether they're dead. I mean, people talk about their loved ones all the time, don't they? And when your child goes off to university, you don't stop talking about them. Mm. On the contrary. And I think just creating that space to listen is enough. It's good enough. And I know that in all our films, which are about sharing stories, people bite our hands off to talk to us because we are bereaved and they know that they can trust that we will not faint on the spot if they say, my son took his life or my daughter died of cancer at age six, they know that we can sit with it and be there.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think other knowing that someone is going to be able to deal with it is really important, which is why I guess your retreats are so successful. Tell me a bit about them. We set up the Good Grief Project a few years ago and
3: we run these creative and active grief retreats, which are about finding a way of expressing yourself through creative writing, through physical activity, through photography. And it's really interesting because people arrive at our retreats, which are in the countryside, and it's just like grief. People say, oh, I can't do it. I remember one person got in touch, and she was in a motorway station. She said, I'm not coming. I've made a terrible mistake. I shouldn't, I can't do it. And we said, well, what you could do is you could just arrive... When you're when you feel ready to get back in your car and drive to the retreat, have a cup of tea and just see if you want to stay. And if you don't, you can leave. And that person did that. She arrived. She stayed. She didn't believe she could survive it. And she left, she said, feeling transformed, full of hope, full of energy. Her body language was different. There's more laughter than you could imagine on our retreats, which is a strange thing to say, because obviously there's a lot of tears, but the relief of being able to take the the metaphorical mask of, and be yourself is just such a sort of rare luxury for people. And so the retreats are very much about, I suppose, modeling a a way of moving forward. They're run by our family, by myself and Jimmy. Joe does the personal training, the boxing. People love the boxing because it's such a great way of venting. Rosa cooks the food because food is such an amazing kind of way of I suppose, nurturing people. And and I guess it helps her to do it. But she loves cooking food for people. It illustrates that families can talk about it, you know, because I mean, obviously, for a lot of couples going through grief, it's inevitable that some relationships won't survive if the cracks are already there. Couples grieve differently. Everybody grieves differently. And I think that, you know, couples need to work on their relationship anyway. We all do. I would say that, wouldn't I? But the point is, is that, you know, when a couple has to deal with trauma, it's something that doesn't necessarily sort of resolve itself. And we notice that couples come on the retreats and it's maybe the first time they've had to kind of just be in a, in a contained environment where they can, if you like, stop looking after the other half of the couple and, and be around other people. We tend to put couples in separate groups and they come together for certain strands of the weekends but it's it's an honour it's a very special way of I suppose finding a language that is more comfortable for people to remember their loved one and find a way of moving forward.
1: Yeah
2: and feel safe and feel that they're with similar people I guess it's you know in that way it's no dissimilar to other stages of life you know when you're a new parent you seek out other new parents because you want to share experiences and you don't want to be made to feel that how you're feeling is different to them. Especially when a child's died, parents say that they feel, they fear they're never going to laugh again, that they feel guilty. Did you feel like that?
3: Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, you can't imagine enjoying food again, enjoying dancing again, enjoying music again. I think that's something that was very helpful for us. When we interviewed people on our road trip across America and when we made film for the Compassionate Friends, Say Their Name, parents talk about that a lot we can really empathize with that you know one woman said that she couldn't imagine dancing again she couldn't she felt guilty Mm. she just felt such a sense of shame and guilt but she realized that that was self-defeating and that in many ways it was so important to find ways of I suppose moving forward and allowing giving yourself permission because kindness to self is really important and it's something we're not very good at self-compassion you know I I do workshops with people in the NHS and, you know, people who are really caught up with trying to help other people. But self-compassion for the professionals, kindness to self is, is, is so neglected, isn't it? We're so bad at it. Why are we so bad at it? Well, I suppose we project all our energy into helping others. And we want to fix it. And doctors, of course, you know, are really good examples of this. Social workers, teachers, you know, but actually we can't do any of the jobs that we do well unless we take care of ourselves. We need, I suppose we need to just be kinder and more self-accepting. You know, if I was, a, if I if carried on blaming myself for Josh's death, I wouldn't be here now doing what I'm doing. It takes you nowhere. Guilt is useless. Useless.
2: Oh, but we're so good at it. Aren't we're we? so good at it. But you're right. I mean, the thing is, if you hadn't given yourself those spaces when you went running or those moments in an empty house where you could just be you and be broken and put yourself back together for that day, you wouldn't really have been able to support your two other children, would you? Because you'd be empty. I mean, I'm sure you didn't feel very full, but we do need to attend to ourselves in order to then support other people and I think that's really true when you're trying to support children through grief.
3: I think the thing that helped me and certainly helped Jimmy was just I think that if you can find the courage to share your story which none of us really want to do you are in a way allowing yourself to move forward and you're also helping to normalize something that's not necessarily normal if you like you know you don't expect to lose people in the wrong order of things but by sharing stories and by making films about people's lived experience in many ways for us that's that's just so cathartic. It's so valuable to hear other people's learning and to share those stories. And and therefore, to do that well, you have to have the courage to share your own. In many ways, I think we would love it if we hadn't shared any of our story and we were living privately without any kind of public exposure, you know, because it's not comfortable. It's never comfortable. But on the other hand, trying to cut off from the reality of our lives doesn't work and that's our experience
2: yeah so true I think some people just struggle so much with it because they think that by ignoring it it's never going to happen yeah but unfortunately you know one of the things I said at the beginning is unless if you don't love you don't grieve Mm. but that's no way to go through life well it's love is the price you pay for grief isn't it and it's so true it's not fair though it should be
3: different it's not fair but you know, actually. I mean, my love for Josh knows no bounds and my grief for Josh knows no bounds. But I wouldn't imagine not having loved, not having had him in my life. You know, it's just like he's he's taught me so much. And
2: he's taught me so much as well. So thank you. Thank you so much to Jane for sharing her personal story and professional insights. Go to www.thegoodgriefproject.co.uk to read more about Jane and Jimmy's work. That's where you can also find links to their films, Beyond Goodbye, Say Their Name and the award-winning A Love That Never Dies. They also made a film during lockdown, Beyond the Mask, which is about the impact of Covid on society. Jane and Jimmy have two surviving children, Joe and Rosa both of whom are part of the team delivering the Good Grief Project active grief weekend retreats for bereaved parents. Rosa provides the food and Joe heads up the active workshops. All the details are on the Good Grief Project website. Their next book, When Words Are Not Enough, Creative Approaches to Grief, is out in November 2022 with an introduction by our very own Dr Catherine Mannix, who spoke so eloquently on the death episode in series one, which is still available to listen to. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode of Conversations with Annalisa Barbieri. The series is produced by Hester Kant, the music is by Toby Dunham, and our artwork is by Lo Cole. Follow us on Instagram at Pocket Annalisa, or you can email us at conversationswithanalisa at gmail.com. If you enjoy today's episode, it would mean a lot if you could share it with someone you think might like it and also give us a review on iTunes. Please join us again next
1: time.
0: Hello, this is Annalisa.
2: I started doing this podcast because it's an idea I really believe in, so much so that I decided to put my money where my mouth is and self-fund the project. I really want to keep releasing this podcast for free, so if you enjoy this episode, a way you can help is to visit our Acast supporter page and give what you can. You'll find the link in the episode description. Thank you.